0: And uh, we are back in, uh, we are, we're back in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and we are looking at verses 22 to 24, and I'm um, back talking about a subject that is near and dear to me, a subject that is very challenging for me even to think about as I've been poring over these verses, I've come to understand that the Bible has a lot to say about the issue of Christian leadership. Christian leadership, and really, what is an honorable, godly, biblical leader? And I just think that what uh, God gives us in this text is an abundance of principles, an abundance of insights, an abundance of directives. For all of us and for every single one of us, it doesn't matter. Say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I don't lead anything at the church. I'm not a leader in that regard. But still, there are great virtues that every single one of us here should really strive after. But let me say this, unapologetically, in terms of the leadership of the church, there is no greater need, I believe, and the greatest need of the hour right now really is good leaders in God's church. And I say that because as you just look at our world, you look at our culture, you look at society, you look at the state of the church, I can only tell you that when I look out at the wasteland that has become evangelicalism today and the very low view of God and a very low view of the Word of God and a very low view of the holiness of God, what is needed today is men, godly men, who will lead the church in a godly way and be dominated by a sense of the holiness of God. That is what is needed today. And I tell you, that is, in, uh, that, that, that is not in abundance today. We are suffering a great famine of leaders in that capacity but you can find leaders, and here, maybe specifically, I'm referring even to the pastors of the churches. But you can find leaders that are, that are renowned because they are charismatic, they have a mag- magnetic personality, or because they are able to do great things in terms of administration, they're able to organize, they're able to, in a sense, run the church like a CEO would. But really, when it comes to biblical leadership, we are talking about fundamentally one thing, and that is doing things God's way. That's it. Being committed to doing things the way that God has specified in His church. And very few and very rare are the men and the women in different areas that are committed to leading God's way, to leading in the home, to be a godly husband Acknowledging godly dads and to execute your office as a godly father in a, in a biblical way. Doing it according to what God's word dictates. And of course, in the church and in ministry, doing things God's way. Of course, today people are fascinated with consumerism. Today churches and pastors are trained above all uh, to become expert marketeers and expert uh, advertisers for a plethora of programs and endless ways to meet all of your felt needs so that the church becomes a big, giant program, organization, institution of felt needs. But really, when you look at the Word of God, you see just a stark difference you see in the Word of God as we're getting ready to see what God really esteems in His leaders, and it's not numbers, it's not personality, it's not popularity, it's not likability factors. Above everything, if I could sum it all up, brothers and sisters, it is the ability or it is the quality of holiness, the quality of godliness, and the, much of what we'll look at today is the quality of integrity and it's all over the pages of scripture and so really this is a second part sermon now on principles of biblical leadership and i want to show you based on this text three more things that a biblical leader must be and must do he must be these things and he must do these things number one he must be diligent to lead you say well that's a profound point a good leader has to be diligent to lead yes because of verse 22 and many other supporting texts that i will take you to but in verse 22 paul returns now to this unnamed brother, this a, a different unnamed brother. He says, We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. And so he zeroes in on that quality, that virtue of diligence, not once but twice, but even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And so right off the bat, Paul is saying, look, I am sending you this delegate of God, faithful men. This, I'm, I'm sending you a group of guys that I can trust. These are not just men that I know of. These are men that I have had uh, dealings with. These are men that I have tested myself. These are those who have labored with the Apostle Paul, been close to the Apostle Paul, and I don't remember when and where, but I remember saying that a good leader is always someone who has been and is probably currently a great asset to other leaders. That's a a dead giveaway to know if someone is a good leader. Is he an asset to other leaders? These men were assets to the Apostle Paul. They were helpers. They came alongside of him. They were men that he can entrust certain sacred tasks to. And, as in the case with this brother, what resulted was a proven character. Now, notice the pattern they have a proven character, therefore Paul sends them. Right? If you look at Philippians chapter two, the same thing can be said about Timothy. That Timothy also was a man of proven character, and the the uh, the the pattern is found there as well. Because of his proven character, he is sent. It says in Philippians two twenty two, you know of his that is Timothy's proven worth. That word there. Dakime just means proving character. It speaks of a person's virtue, his integrity. It says that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. Now, that language of sending, that's a technical ministerial language in the Bible for being sent for certain uh, official ministry tasks, if you would, apostolic tasks. And uh Timothy had proven that he was a man of character. And he says, as soon as I see how things go with me, and just to finish off the verse. But you see, there, that's the point, is that this, these men have been sent because they have been tested. They have been tested. They, they're good, trustworthy leaders. And further than that, this unnamed brother here, he'd been tested numerously. Uh, 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 he'd been tested often. Uh, he's, been, he's gone through a thorough scrutiny of his character. Look at what it says. Our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. And so that repetition, often tested and tested in what? Many things. You see that it wasn't just on one occasion he didn't just pass one test it wasn't a oh did you see what this brother did did you see what this sister did how she responded how they reacted to that one situation but this is i think probably over an interval of years of watching and observing and testing this person and because they had passed the test they were ready for the ministry they were ready to be entrusted you know, ministry is a trust. When you are entrusted with leadership, you, are, you have been given a sacred trust. You are handling precious and valuable things. The weight of glory is in your hands. God's work is in your hands. And it's a, it's a sobering, daunting, sacred things. I recall the words of Ezekiel when he says, Oh God, forgive me for the iniquity of my holy things knowing his own failure, knowing his own own destitution. But a a godly leader is somebody who has been tested in holy things and has been proven faithful. And in this text, Paul zeroes in on this idea of diligence, which we've looked at this word already. We've already looked at it. it. It appeared earlier in verse 17 with regard to Titus, that he too was diligent, or the word is zealous. Now, let me... Let me state the obvious here by taking you to Romans chapter 12, verse 8. There, as Paul is just going through a list of the gifts that God has given his people, his church, he states the obvious. But it's a factor that we can't overlook, especially if you aspire to leadership. Listen to what he says The one who leads is to lead in this way, paraphrase, with diligence. In other words, he's to be characterized with diligence. If you're going to be a leader in God's church, the very first thing that ought to dominate you is zeal in your leadership. Diligence. Uh, The word there, uh, spade, even means eager. There's an impulse to lead. Let me tell you something. That impulse cannot be imparted. I can't teach you that impulse. I can't train you enough how to have that impulse. You either got it or you don't got it. And if you have it, if God has given it to you, then it's your job to cultivate it. It's your job to maintain it. It's your job to increase and to nurture your gift, to add, to use the words of Timothy, to add certain things to your faith like diligence. And if you're a leader in God's church, if you're a leader at all, if you're a leader in any capacity and if any area that God has called you to lead, you ought to lead with a certain zeal. It's beautiful. It's great to see. People want to be led by a person who is diligent to lead. People want to be led by people that are zealous for what they're doing. And they don't view their task as a grudge. They don't view their, their calling to lead as a burden mainly but they they lead with zeal and god it's often the case that god gifts his servants with this type of zeal when he calls them to lead these men are proof of that the apostle paul another extremely zealous man it says there in philippians or excuse me in galatians chapter 1 but later in philippians chapter 3 uh, paul and his zeal shifts to christ to an all-encompassing vision of christ to an all-dominant pursuit of christ a complete obsession with knowing jesus christ and the zeal and this diligence is also to be i believe enthusiastic it should be inspirational it should be joyful and i say that i have exegetical grounds for this second corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 specifically talking about Paul's authorial, uh, or excuse me, Paul's apostolic authority. This is him talking talking about leadership. He's talking about his authority as an apostle, and he says, this is the way that we yield our authority. Do we dominate over you? Are we domineering? Do we lord it over you? No. But instead, he says, we are workers with you for your joy. So I believe a good and godly, diligent, zealous leader ought to be producing joy in his people. What a wonderful thing it is. There needs to be an eagerness to do this. There needs to be a willingness to to step up, to meet the challenge, to rise to the occasion. Maybe to kind of draw out the implication here a little bit further, why don't we look at the opposite, the negative side of this? Turn to Acts or I could just read it to you, but Acts chapter 15, you know this passage. This is that infamous passage about the great division that arose between Paul and Barnabas, and leadership was right at the heart of the division. This passage that now lives, really, it is now renowned. We always say, oh, that's just one of those Paul and Barnabas deals. Yeah, but you know that Paul and Barnabas deal happened because of leadership issues. This is an example of John Mark who lacked the diligence that was needed. It was an apostasy, but it was a failure, I believe, in leadership. It says in Acts 15, 36, after some days, Paul and Barnabas uh, uh, said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. In other words, this is pastoral ministry that they are getting ready to go and engage in. They're going to go see what is the the state of the churches? What's the health of the churches? Let's go minister to the churches. This is where we preach the Word of God. This is where God rose up churches. Let's go back around again in the second missionary journey and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. Just that little leadership decision right there. He wanted to take a man called John Mark with him. But it says, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. And that goes back to Acts chapter 13, verse 13. He says, "But he, and he had not gone with them to the work. He wasn't diligent in his leadership. He wasn't committed. And there occurred a sharp disagreement. They were separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus but the text goes on to say in acts in verse 40 that Paul takes Silas with him and it is Paul and Silas that the churches commit to the grace of God in Luke is careful enough to point out that it was Paul and Silas that were committed by the churches to the grace of God. I think because here there is no, you know, oftentimes we make this uh, distinction. Like, well, this was just a disagreement. It could have went either way. I don't think so. I think Paul was right. I think Barnabas was wrong. I think John Mark had failed. It uses the language of failure. It, it uses the language of, of desertion, and I think he had failed in his duties. Why did he fail? because he didn't fulfill his duty. He didn't fulfill his ministry. He didn't go all the way with his ministerial duties. And that's why we need to be diligent. A biblical, godly uh, leader has to be diligent to lead. They cannot slack. They cannot falter. And obviously here I'm preaching to the choir. Trust me, as I'm studying this, great conviction as I'm studying these texts. Because all of these great and glorious virtues, I see so many deficiencies of it in my own life. But I pray, oh God, make me like this. Make me a man as diligent as this. Make me this kind of leader. But let me point you to the next thing. Not just devoted uh, uh, to lead or diligent to lead, but secondly, he also has to be devoted to labor, to labor, and this kind of gets more to to the nature of their calling. Right? Look at verse twenty-three. He returns to Titus. He comes. You know, Titus comes back into the picture here. He says, "He is my partner, my fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches. Of the churches, a glory to Christ." A glory to Christ. So several three three things that are mentioned here about Titus and then this the unnamed brothers. Okay? Number one, it says that he is a partner with Paul. He uses that word partner. The word is the word where we get the word koinonia, fellowship. It means that Titus was one that fellowshipped. He was a Fellowshipper. We don't really use that word because it doesn't sound right. Right? Sounds kind of sounds off. Some grammatical uh, problem with the word. We don't typically go to. Oh, he's a good fellowshipper. But that is precisely what this man was. He was a partner. He was somebody that Paul could trust to engage in spiritual fellowship with. I love it. He was there. He was with him. He was his partner. He partnered with him. And uh, that's what the fellowship of the church should be, you know. All members should be fellowshipping with one another. We should be able to point to our brother or sister next to us and say, they are fellowshippers with me in this church. And the word partner is a perfectly justifiable translation for this Greek word. And it just means that you're in it with your brother or sister next to you. You're in the trenches together. You're, you're yoked up, you're linked up with one another in the work of the ministry, in the, in, 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 in the church, and just in walking with God in a perverse and crooked generation. And uh, my wife and I, had to use this as an example, but my wife and I just went to a, a community, uh, uh, I don't know, what, what do you want to call it? Uh, it? The neighbors got together and we all went to dinner and got to know one another. And I just tell you, boy, we are exiles in this world. I had so little in common with my neighbors. It was unbelievable. Because I wasn't talking Bible, you know, for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes. And then eventually, of course, you know, we got into witnessing and just preached the gospel the whole night. But it just reminded me how different we are and how that the substance of our fellowship is so different than the substance of the fellowship of the world that they can get together and they can talk about how, 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 how much they're into their fitness and how much they're into their sports and how much they're into the whatever type of scene is going on in the world, and they're up on this and they're up on that. They're up on this show and they're up on that show. But you know what? Our fellowship is to be distinguished by the Spirit of the living God. Our fellowship is to be undergirded by the work of the ministry, and that's what's going on here. Our fellowship is to be undergirded by the Word of God. Everything that we do, permeated, saturated, inundated with the Word of God. Oh, that's what I want for my soul. When I come to church, I want to be encouraged by people who are in the Word. I can go to my worldly neighbors to go get chit-chat. I can go to my worldly neighbors to just talk about the weather and the sports. I want to come to the church to receive distinctly spiritual fellowship I want to come to the church to, to receive from you, as Paul says there in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, some spiritual exchange back and forth, some relish of God, some savor, some taste of holy things while I'm here. The church is to be that type of safe haven. Another thing that this man was, he wasn't just a a fellowship or somebody that engaged in spiritual fellowship with him, but he was also a hard worker. He was devoted to labor. Look at the phrase, fellow worker. There's a whole theology of fellow working in the Bible, and what gets me excited about this word is how broad and how far-reaching this term is found. You find it in association to both men and women. Paul calls uh, 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 Syntyche and and Yodia, he calls them fellow workers. They strived together with Paul and the things of the gospel. You don't have to be a pastor to be a fellow worker. You a Christian? You want the gospel to go out? Are you kingdom-minded? Are you thinking about souls? Are you thinking about the Word of God? Then you can be, and you are, a fellow worker. You've been enlisted as a worker in God's field. And it's also used of all, all sorts of different groups. Paul uses the word to refer to a whole group of men at one time in Philemon 24. Abstractly, if you look at this, Paul also talks about being a fellow worker with the kingdom of God. Amazingly, amazing. They are fellow workers uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, says that men like Aristarchus, Barnabas' cousin Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice, these men were fellow workers with the kingdom of God. What an amazing thought! I'm a fellow worker with the kingdom of God, with God's own government on earth, spiritually speaking, furthering his kingdom. I love it. And then maybe the supreme example or the apex of this fellow worker theology is is we don't reach it until we understand that we are fellow workers with God Himself. Hopefully, if we have the right perspective, that will begin to change some things, right? about the way that we view our Christian lives, I am a fellow worker with God? That's right. Sunergos. You're working together with Him. There's a connection between you and God in a certain activity, especially in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 3.2, Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker. I love it. Could there be anything more distinguishing? Could there be anything more honorable than to know that you are a fellow worker with God? You're working with Him. In his field, 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, sometimes the reason why we don't, we don't experience or maybe we don't appreciate the idea that we are fellow workers with God is because we are not working in the field. Sometimes we don't appreciate that I am God's fellow worker. Because we are not engaged in the work. And therefore we experience so little of what it means to be in close union with God and His work. Let's look at the third word. Not only was He partner, not only was He a fellow worker, but He also now, describing these brethren, uses the Greek word apostle. Apostolos. They are messengers of the churches. You see that? And that Greek word is apostolos, which is the same Greek word that is used for the 12 apostolos, the 12 apostles, right? But you know, if you've been studying the Word of God for any length of time, that this word is spoken in both in a technical and a non-technical and sometimes in a semi-technical fashion. Barnabas was that semi-technical apostle these men are non-technical apostles and paul and the 12 were technically apostles of the highest order who had been with christ who had seen the lord and who had been commissioned by jesus himself i had a young man 19 years old 19 years old at starbucks telling me i am an apostle i said you are wow Never met a 19-year-old apostle. I haven't met an apostle at all, but 19-year-old apostle? You've seen the Lord? Yes, I have, he says. Wow, how have you When did you see Jesus? He says, I see him all the time in the eye of faith. I said, well, then you've just completely undone your argument because we all see Jesus that way. So we're all apostles. So you're nothing special. But you get the point. If you don't have a proper view of what an apostle is, well, then you'll you, you 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 can you can get this theology wrong, and you can think that you have some sort of authority, like apostolic authority, the way that Paul did, the way that Peter did, the way that the John did. When you don't, the word apostle simply means what? It means to be sent. It means somebody that's go. Somebody that's sent by God. You're on a task. You're on a mission. That's what an apostle means. Now, some people, they want to try to resurrect the language of apostleship today in this non-semi-technical fashion. I've been on people's websites. I've looked through their doctrinal statements, and I have found that part of their belief statement is that they like to use the word apostle. I personally don't like it because it can be more safely translated messenger. It can be more safely translated in a different way that does not create the confusion. And that's why I will not, if you go on a mission trip from this church or you go witnessing in this church, I will not call you an apostle. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I, I think there's better ways to speak of that. But they're also, notice the difference, they are not commissioned by Christ. They are commissioned by the church. They're messengers of the church. That means they go from and to the church. That means they're working out of the authority of the local church and for the benefit of the local church. That is their sphere. That is what they're engaged in. And it also this, these leaders also had a Christological orientation. It says here, gloriously oh i hope you delight in this that they were according to paul a glory of christ now if you have an esv it says the glory of christ that these men were the glory of christ and that could cause some confusion so i like the nasb a little bit better they are a glory in other words somehow they beautify jesus christ in what they did How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of great things, of great joy. How beautiful are those who preach the gospel. And when you are a messenger to the churches, when you are engaged in this sort of ministry as these men were, then you bring great glory to Jesus Christ and you do not bring shame to Christ. John MacArthur says, showing the high caliber of men in which the early church entrusted money, Paul called these three a glory to Christ. There could be no higher commendation than those who live to bring glory to Him, and they would not bring shame to His name or to His church. And that's why Paul is delighted to endorse these men. He is delighted to stand by them because they were churchmen. Don't miss that. They were local church focused. They were local church oriented. They had a high view of the local church. They weren't absent from the local church. They weren't absent minded about the local church. The local church wasn't just an afterthought. No, but they were focused on the church. They loved the church. They cared about the church. They were concerned for the health of the church. And so that brings us to the last thing. What is the church's response to leaders like this? The third thing, therefore, is that they are deserving of love. These men, diligent, biblical, godly leaders, they have to be, according to this text, they have to be diligent to lead, they have to be devoted to their work, and they are also deserving of our love. Therefore, verse 24, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of the reason for both excuse me, and of our reason for boasting about you. You see that there openly before the churches? Paul, I believe, wanted the church to be a community of love, an atmosphere of love where you can come and receive love, and you can come and you can give love. Christianity, after all, is more than anything distinguished by its love, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this men will know that you're my disciple, your love for one another. Just, just, we just, we just got to love each other, no matter what we've done to each other. (laughs) No matter how hard it is sometimes to love one another, right? Because sometimes, let's face it, sometimes we are not the most lovable people, right? Sometimes we're too critical to be lovable. Sometimes we're too objectable to be lovable. Sometimes we're too harsh to be lovable. Sometimes we're too, you know, detached to be lovable. Sometimes we're just not engaged to be lovable. Sometimes we don't have the right personality to be lovable. Sometimes there's, there's all kinds of problems in our lives. It makes it hard for people to love you. But that is the transcendent difference in Christian love, that we love one another despite all of our hang-ups and all of our problems. Now, the issue here is that the church was to receive the emissaries that Paul sent. So this is, this is big time because they are handling a very sensitive issue in the church. They're dealing with money, and they're dealing with money in a church that has problems. And they're dealing with money in a church where there are voices that are prone to accuse for financial impropriety. You think it's hard to minister in a context like that? You bet. You bet it's hard to minister in a context like that, where there are things being said, where there's accusations being drawn, where there's flat-out opponents that are attacking the credibility of Paul's ministry and of his fellow workers. You bet it's difficult in a context like that to minister. And that's why Paul, I think, is just urging this church, stirring the church to affirm them, to love them openly before the churches. Notice that. He wants them to do this publicly precisely because of the reasons I just gave. He wants them to do this. He uses the word here that literally means face-to-face, prasipon, face-to-face in the churches, publicly, right in front of people. Love them. When they come in, okay, don't play the part. When they come into your church, love them openly. Okay, don't say one thing to them in private and then in front of other people like Peter did in Antioch. Don't become somebody else. Love these men genuinely. Let love be, Paul says, without hypocrisy, and that's what he's calling for here. Love them without hypocritical love. Without hypocr- do it publicly. Affirm them. Love them. He says, show them the proof of your love. You see that? Christian love needs to be proven. We know that from 1 John. 1 John is huge on that. 1 John is very challenging, isn't it? It's not just to love to say, hey, I love you, man. Hey, I love you, sister, brother. But it's another thing to say, I love you so much, I'm going to prove it to you by what I do, by how I live my life. I'm going to come over and help you move when you're moving, I might even give you money when you're down and out. I will do whatever it takes. I'll take you into my home. I'll show you the kind of hospitality that true love demands. And this is just all proof of the love. But how did this church love these men? And how did did the church prove their love for these men? I would submit to you that this is how they did it. They respected their work. They respected them for their work. Number two, they cooperated with them in their work. That was it. They, they, they received them as an authentic delegation of the Apostle Paul, having the authority of Paul, men who actually stood in the place of Paul. They were there on his behalf, and they received that authority. And they were also cooperative in the work to give these Jerusalem saints the aid that they needed, and that's... Uh, That's a great sign, by the way, for a church. You know that? That's that's a marvelous sign for any church is the ability to cooperate in this way. You know that you can embolden your leaders by your cooperation, right? By your participation. It strengthens the leadership. It emboldens the leadership. It causes them to want to lead even more if we do this. So he tells them, prove your love to them. Demonstrate it. Show it to them. And this display of love also resulted in even further cooperation with the Apostle Paul himself, because he's saying, look, do this so that uh, you might prove, right, our reason for boasting about you. So Paul had Paul had argued for this church. He had labored to, you know, to tell these men this is a good church. They'll receive you. I know they will. It's a true church. Because it's a true church, they will be obedient to God's commands, and that is what a true church is all about. A true church is an obedient church. A true church is a church that cooperates with the gospel and that steps in, participates. And that's why and you know, and that can be expressed on so many l- levels. I mean, if you don't come to small group and there's just four of us sitting there looking at each other, okay, I, let's get real. It's a little deflating. <laughs> but as in the case of the last small group we were at where the house is just bursting with people, it's great. It, it, just, it, just, it, just, it just creates more fellowship. It, it, it's infectious. It just, it just, I don't know what it is. It just, it's fellowship. That's what we were created for. Surprise, surprise, you're edified by it. And surprise, surprise, you're not edified when it's not there. So we're meant to cooperate with one another, brothers and sisters. And let me tell you another thing, another thing that you can encourage us with, and that is your presence in the local church when the Word of God is being taught. And your presence in Sunday school. If you're going to Sunday school, then go to Sunday school when the Word of God is being taught. Be there. Encourage it. If if there's no legitimate reason to be wandering around in the hallway while the Word of God is being taught in Sunday school, then go listen to the Word of God and encourage the one who is teaching. See, there's practical ways that we can do this. There's practical ways that we can stir up one another for good works. And so, in closing, the Apostle Paul, no doubt, wanted them to recognize that these men were honorable leaders, worthy of respect, worthy of love, worthy of support, He reflects on this very thing, I think, in a parallel passage. If you turn, lastly, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, sort of in the same breath here. Paul talking about a different fellow worker this time, talking about Epaphroditus. A very close parallel to everything we've looked at here today. He says, Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him Then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. In other words, he brought very uh, he he brought a, a great needed aid for the apostle Paul, who at the time was in house arrest and who needed this kind of aid brought to him. He risked his life to bring it to Paul, and Paul says, "This man is worthy for you to accept him and love him and receive him with joy and to hold him in high esteem." In high regard because of his work. See, that's the thing, brothers and sisters, just in closing here. The reason we do everything that we do is because we trust God that what he has said in his word and what he has specified about who you and I are is true, that your leaders are worthy of double honor, that you really should submit to those who obey, who who, who have authority over you in the Lord, That, that, that elders should literally lead without compulsion, that they should do it with joy, not begrudgingly, that they, should, that they should lead the flock of God and shepherd the flock of God. There is an over-under responsibility that we have to one another, and we do it all on the assumption of the faithfulness and validity and truthfulness of God's Word. Amen? And that's the way to have a, a, a pure church. I don't know any other way to have a pure church. It doesn't come with numbers. It doesn't come with um, 101 programs. It comes with doing things God's way because that's what His Word teaches. And the more we do it like that, guess what? The more we're going to be blessed. The more we're going to experience the blessing of God, the spiritual blessings of God, and sometimes the physical, material blessings of God as well in the church. You know, a church like that, I think, has to grow. Man, I tell you what, if we're thriving like that and the church is still not growing numerically, get rid of me. Get somebody else. Because it should grow, right? You want to go to a church like that that's thriving and loving and just a community of people that are affirming one another and fellowshipping and and just you know, being edifying and building each other up in love. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Father, we pray that you would give us the grace uh, to be just that, Lord. uh, Oh God, not a perfect church. We will never be. But Lord, may we be distinguished for our love. Let it be, Lord, that in this church, every member and every attender that comes faithfully, that we are all dominated by a sense of wanting to do what your word says because we know that your word is right. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the right motive. That first and foremost, everything that we do, we do for your glory and for your honourable, because for your honour, because you are the most honourable of all leaders. Jesus, the greatest leader of all, leaving us the greatest example of all. Led us in such a glorious way, humility and love and strength and confidence and competence. Give us an example to follow, not just how to lead, but also how to follow. And so, Father, give us that heart. Give me, Pastor Allen, give the leaders here in our church the the right heart for leadership. Give all of the members of our church the right heart of submission, which I believe is is here. I believe is present in our church, and I'm thankful for it. We pray, Lord, that you would just bless our church. Father, we're going to go through many seasons. and We know, Lord, like in the life of any church, there's going to be lots of ups and downs, peaks and valleys. Father, there'll be days of abundance and there'll be days of seeming famine. And uh, help us, Lord, in every season to walk with you, to love one another and to lay down our lives for each other. We love you, Lord. Continue to work in our church, we pray, by the power of your spirit, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.